The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit MidtownColumbia.com slash partner. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all. Uh, this morning, if I hadn't had the chance to meet you, I'm Ant. I'm the pastor here uh, at Midtown Two Notch. If you are new, hopefully we were able to get you uh, a bulletin at the bottom of that. It has what we call the sign and drop, uh, especially if this is your first time. Would you fill that out for us and drop it in the offering baskets at the end of our time together? We'd love to get to know you uh, just a little bit better uh, if you'd be willing to do that uh, for us. Like I said, I'm Ant, uh, one of the pastors here. Super glad to be uh, worshiping here with you again, especially if you are uh, a visitor and a special guest here with us uh, today. If you will go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you can turn to John chapter 20, we'll get there in a minute. We'll be starting in verse 19. Uh, in this series, we've been dealing uh, with what we've just been calling spiritual enemies, uh, these, 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 um, these toxins to us spiritually, if you would, that, that keep us from uh, prospering spiritually as God desires for us to. These spiritual enemies, uh, a few that we've gotten into already, uh, one is apathy, Uh, We've talked about distraction. We've talked about self-reliance. Today, uh, we're we're switching it up. And for the next three weeks, we'll be talking about the spiritual enemy that we're calling spiritual cynicism. Again, spiritual cynicism. Uh, Outside of a spiritual context, cynicism is when you, uh, you have a tendency to be a doubter. You have a tendency to, uh, to not take things at face value or just assume the worst in someone or something. Someone who is cynical is just distrusting, suspicious. The one who is, who is cynical will often find or believe the worst in someone instead of being able to give them the benefit of the doubt. A cynical person might, might see someone doing something that, that, that could be good, but just assume that they have false motives when they do it. I've seen people do this with pastors sometimes. You've seen a pastor that, that's abused his authority before, and now someone expects all pastors to, to do that in the same way. This is cynicism. I know I have a tendency to do this with politicians in general. Any politician that, that goes extremely far in their field, I just have a tendency. My, my first thought when they say something is, yeah, you probably can't do that. You probably can't truly pull that off. Or maybe, maybe you can, but you won't. I have this, this, this general cynicism well, my first thought is, uh, you probably, you're probably lying. You're probably not telling the truth. Someone who's, who is cynical by nature, you, you, you may do something good for them or bless them in some way 10 different times, but if you don't respond to that text in time, you don't like them, right? They're convinced now that, that you do not like them, that you are against them. You, you may have gone out of your way a number of times for someone, but if you said one comment that didn't quite come out right, then it's like, see, I knew that person didn't like me. I knew that person wasn't for me. Cynical people are unable to give others the benefit of the, of the doubt. It's this overall doubt and distrust that, that kind of we operate in on a day in, day out, moment by moment basis. I, I like to describe cynicism as the, the fruit of hopelessness in our life. That hopelessness has stepped in. We, we've seen so many things go wrong. We've seen so much bad. We've seen so many people do things with wrong intentions that now we just assume that that's what everyone does all the time. That's all that there is in the world. So we always doubt. We've, we've seen so much damage. We've become jaded by the harm that we've seen, maybe by our own heartache, that we just lose hope in good in the world. Spiritual cynicism occurs when this cynicism works its way into our spiritual lives and into our relationship with God and into what we believe about God. 
When this unhealthy suspicion begins to creep its way into our spiritual life. Here's how I define spiritual cynicism. A posture of skepticism that leads you to doubt God's presence and activity in your life. A posture of skepticism that leads you to doubt God's presence and activity in your life. So when your cynicism has become so widespread that it starts to determine for you what you believe about God. Where you no longer solely rely on God's word to tell you what's true about God and what you believe about God. But now the hopelessness and the cynicism is dictating to you who you believe God to be, what you believe God to be doing. The cynicism becomes so widespread that it compromises our faith. And it might, you might find yourself thinking things like, there's no way God's really going to work in my life. There's no way God would actually use me to save somebody. God probably doesn't even really care about me and my situation. God, and then God accomplishes something that you've been praying for for a long period of time, and your, your initial thought is, well, that probably would have happened even if I wouldn't have prayed. This doubt of God and his goodness, his, his presence, and his activity in our lives. And this, this happens in a, in, a, in a few different arenas. One of the ways that it happens is uh, a lot of times we have this, this intellectual skepticism. I, I call it a worshiping of our own thoughts. Like we, we tend to believe that if there's something that I can't understand, that I can't fully wrap my mind around, then it, doesn't, then it can't be real. Right? So, so for some people, it's like, uh, oh, you believe the stories of the Bible. You truly believe a man was swallowed by a fish and was in there for three days and then the fish spit him back out so he can go where God called him to go? Like, you really believe that? Right, so, so it says what, what happens is, if we're, if we're not extremely careful, we, we begin to adopt this belief that if I can't wrap my mind around it, if I can't understand it and see how it could actually happen, then it must not be true. That's a worship of our own intellect instead of worship of God. And, and th- let's just pause for a second and just consider the arrogance of that statement. The, the arrogance of that statement is saying, if my mind can't understand it, it's not real. It's such a high and lofty belief in our own ability to understand that we put it above everything else. And it's like, well, if I can't understand how it could possibly happen, then it must not be true. I just want to say this for you. You're not that smart. And on top of that, it leaves no room for a God whose thoughts are above our thoughts whose ways are above our ways. It, it leaves no room in, in, our, in our psyche and in our faith for a God that's like that. This cynicism runs deep in our culture. There'll be many people who try to convince you that God isn't real by, by bringing up this recent thing that science is saying now. And if you're not careful, your, your own intellectual cynicism will lead you away from God. So we begin to worship our own minds. I think some of that comes from the fact that now in the age of technology, we're, we're, we're able to have more information available to us than ever before. Right? We're able to, to learn more about things than ever before. Whereas, whereas in years past and in generations past, information wasn't that steadily available. So I think it was easier for people to accept the fact that there are things I just don't understand about the world. There's things I just don't understand. But for us, in the age of technology, in the time where I can find information about anything, in about 20 seconds on my phone, we tend to believe that if my mind can't be wrapped around, if I can't understand it, then it must not be real. This intellectual cynicism, I think, gets to many of us. I know personally for myself, I've had seasons of questions and doubts in my life. I remember a specific season of my life, this was, uh, I think, my senior year in college, and then the, a few months after I graduated, where I went through this, this horrifying time of just doubting God's existence, 
right? I probably heard some, someone who's like a famous atheist make some, some claims about something, and it was just, a, I mean, it was a horrifying, like, I remember going to God being like, God, if you're real, help me, because I'm starting to doubt that you even exist. Will you help me to see that you're actually real? God, will you please prove this to me? Like, I, I want to continue to believe in you, but I'm having struggles with this right now. I don't want to walk away, but I'm struggling right now. And for me at this time, uh, some of you knew me at, at that time in my life. I was leading a ministry on a college campus. I was going, leading a Bible study and teaching people about God and then going back to my room and saying, God, help me to believe the things that I just told to other people. Seasons of, of doubt and this cynicism, this skepticism, it is it's very real. It's very real for many of us. Thankfully, Jesus pursues us even in our doubts. Thankful, thankfully, when we as his children have doubt, he, he comes to us and he calls us to come to him rather than him shunning us and just telling us that we need to just, just, just believe on our own. I actually have a, um, a family member uh, who's, who he said growing up in his experience in church, he had doubts, he had questions. He's like, how do y'all know this to be true? And everybody just said, no, 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 just believe. And then kind of shunned and condemned him for not believing. Right? No one ever tried to give him a reasonable answer for his questions, and they just told him, no, no, you just need to get yourself together and believe like the rest of us believe. Is that how Jesus responds to us? Does he just leave us to our own devices and, and say, you, you need to believe and have faith on your own, or does he respond differently? In John chapter 20, we'll get, we'll get started at verse 19, just to capture you up on what's been going on. Jesus um, was, was crucified three days ago, and then uh, obviously uh, he got up out of the grave. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Uh, I think she had burial spices with her. They didn't have uh, funeral homes and embalming at that time, so the, the body was beginning to stink. So she's coming with, with the spices, as they commonly did after someone was buried, and she finds that he isn't there. She starts weeping. She thinks someone has taken the body away. Then obviously Jesus appears right in front of her. She goes and shares the news with the disciples who are together, together and that catches us up at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. It says disciples, for fear of the Jews, were inside a room with the doors locked. So Jesus had been leading uh, this movement kind of where he's obviously doing all these healings and all these uh, miraculous uh, teachings and miraculous works. And at the same time, he, he, he's speaking in such a way that's very offensive to the religious establishment of the day. He, he's angered some people who are very powerful and very influential. And those people uh, eventually put a plot together that, that ended up having him killed. Right? And his disciples are known as the ones who followed him. So they, they have reason to be afraid. They're, they're inside. They're huddled together. The doors are locked. And Jesus, showing off his power and authority, comes in the room. No, no need for a door for the resurrected Lord. They believe someone has stolen his body. They're in this place of grieving, most likely. Their, their friend, their teacher, the one that they had submitted to, the one that they had followed, had just been brutally murdered for something he hadn't done, right? So, so suffering and being murdered under an, impress, an oppressive governmental system. They're, they're, they're grieving this injustice that's happened. And now Mary comes back to them and, and she's like, hey, somebody stole the body. I don't, I don't know what's going on at this point. I can only imagine their mental state at this point, the confusion, the, the anxiety, the worrying, the fear, the grieving. And then Jesus shows up. 
Peace be with you, he says. I don't know if you've ever felt peace from the Lord in the middle of just chaotic times. This is what Jesus is offering to them at this point. And then to prove to them that, was, that it was him, he showed them his hands and his side. This is an incredibly kind, incredibly loving thing for Jesus to do for his disciples. The resurrected Lord comforting them in their grief. I imagine their, 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 their tears of, of sadness and grief turning into tears of joy at this point. Let's continue reading in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I heard one pastor say that's the understatement of the year right there. Seeing the resurrected Jesus gives them this, this gladness. The, the grieving and fear now gets swept up in joy and gladness in the Lord. They're, they're, they're tears of mourning and our tears of joy. I, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what the, what the, what the first century equivalent of a, just a masculine dap hug is. But I'm just imagining that's going on all the way around the place. Jesus said to them in verse 21, peace be with you. Second time he said that. Verse 21 again, as the Father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful, powerful moment right here. Powerful, powerful moment. First thing he says is, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So this is the first, uh, like, a resurrected, resurrected Jesus, a commissioning of his disciples. He's saying, just in the same way that I was sent, now I'm sending you out. Right, so resurrected Jesus comes and it's like the, the things that I did, now I'm commissioning you to do that. I'm giving you the keys to the car now. Like you, you, it's you guys' turn. Y'all are up next. And then it says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for spirit uh, in, in the New Testament, when the Bible uses, uh, refers to the Holy Spirit, it uses the Greek word pneuma or pneuma. That word is also a word that, that can be translated or is used to, to describe a, a, a breath or a wind or, or a short like burst of air. So as Jesus breathes on them, he, he, he gives them a picture of giving them his pneuma, his breath, his spirit, and then he tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. This is this incredibly beautiful ceremonial type of commissioning that Jesus is doing with his disciples, right? So they go from this place of grieving, worry, anxiety, fear to the resurrected Lord shows up, breathes on them, gives them his, his pneuma, so to speak, and then tells them about the Holy Spirit that is going to come upon them. Incredibly beautiful, powerful ceremony, kind of this initiation, this commissioning that he's doing. And then look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Not sure if you've ever felt like you've seen God doing amazing things in and through the lives of other people, but felt like that's not happening with you. I can only imagine this is what Thomas is going through at this point, right? Like Thomas had walked with Jesus like the rest of them, right? Like, like Thomas had stood with him. Thomas had followed in his teachings. Thomas had, had believed in him to some degree, but Thomas was not there to experience this incredible moment, this incredible ceremony of seeing Jesus. They, 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 they put their hands in, in the holes of his hands. They got to see him resurrected. Thomas missed out on this amazing experience that the other disciples had. They, they had been strengthened. They had had their hope and their, and their peace renewed in the Lord. But Thomas, he wasn't there. And it seems like as we get into the next verse, it seems like this, this grief and disappointment is causing some amount of cynicism in Thomas. As we continue in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger 
into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas said, unless I see him with my eyes, unless I see the holes in his hand, and unless I put my finger in those holes, unless I see the holes in his side and place my hand in it, I will never believe. This is Thomas. He had seen Jesus do miracle after miracle. It hadn't been long since he's seen, he seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Like He, he would have been familiar with this. He's seen the miracles that Jesus had worked. And these are Thomas's boys coming in. These are the ones he had done life with for, for probably about three years at this point. They knew him. He, he knew them. These were people he should have been able to trust. They tell him, hey, Jesus is alive, Thomas. He's alive. We saw him with our eyes. The same thing that he did for Lazarus, the same thing that he did for the little girl. He did for himself. He's alive. We've seen him. And he says, I will never believe until I put my hands in the holes in his hands. He had gone on this incredible journey with Jesus and his disciples. But at their testimony, at their eyewitness accounts of multiple people, he doesn't believe it. Uh, I've watched a little bit of Law and Order today, so I feel like, I mean, Law and Order in my life, so I feel like I can, I can communicate clearly on uh, the American uh, court system. Generally speaking, what happens, in, in most cases when you're trying to decide if someone is innocent or guilty or somebody is, is real or not, uh, one of the things that you'll, you, you'll, you'll notice is oftentimes there's not a credible eyewitness. If there is a credible eyewitness, and especially if there's multiple credible eyewitnesses, it's open and shut, it's done. This person is either innocent or guilty based on what the credible eyewitness says. These are his boys. These are his friends who are saying, we are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord. And Thomas says, until I see him, until I put my hands in the holes in his hands, I will never believe. There are a few different things that can cause this spiritual cynicism in us. I think for Thomas, I think it's a combination of some amount of skepticism and some amount of hurt and grieving, I believe. Maybe that he wasn't there that's causing this cynicism in him. The question before us today is, what is our cynicism rooted in? What is your cynicism rooted in? What causes you to doubt the presence and activity of God, presence and activity of God in your life? What makes you say things like, there's no way God's really going to work through me and use me in someone else's life. There's no way God's going to use me to, to, to save someone. What, what are the things that, that make you feel like God is not present and active and lovingly involved in all the details of your life? What's that rooted in for you? Is it the intellectual skepticism that I brought up a little bit earlier that maybe even caused you to feel like I need physical proof that God is real? Like Thomas, as I shared in my story a little bit earlier, this is the type of skepticism that I dealt with, this intellectual, like, God, I, I, how do I know for sure that you're real, that you're who you say you are? Hearing people say things like, so you, so you really believe that, like, one pair of every animal got on a boat and it rained for 40 days and then the, the boat floated and it came down after the flood was over? You really, you really believe that? If I can give a quick side note for any of you, if that's your struggle in here today, I, I, I want to rec uh, recommend to you to, to even doubt your doubts is the way I like to talk about it. One thing that I will, that I will do in times when I, when I feel these doubts continuing to creep up for me is I'll, and literally you can do this in, in, in 20 seconds, you can Google evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's where you are, I, I would want to, to encourage you if, you, if you struggle with this intellectual skepticism, 
because there really is sound historical evidence of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. I don't have time to get into all the apologetics of it today. So maybe it's an intellectual skepticism. Maybe it's a cynicism of doubting God's work through you. For many of us, our cynicism isn't that we doubt God's existence. It's that we just don't really believe that God would, would, would do things in and through us, that he really has a desire to do it, that he's really powerful to do that through his Holy Spirit. You have that, that feeling that yeah, God works through other people to do what, he, what he's going to do, but he probably won't really use me. Maybe you tried to share your faith with someone before and it didn't go the way that you hoped. For some of you, it's not that you will come out loud and say that God wouldn't use me, but your life, the way your life is set up, you can just tell that you don't really expect God to work through you. Just by, just by your actions, it's easy to tell. Uh, I'll give, it, give an example. Um, Throughout the history of our church, we've been in the church for almost five years now, and so we've been doing life groups since uh, we got started as a church. And there's been quite a few times where I've had people come to me uh, just personally, just like set up a one-on-one meeting and say, Aunt, uh, I, think I, am, uh, I think I'm done with life group. I think I don't want to do uh, that anymore. It's not doing for me what I expected to do for me. It's not doing for me what I want it to do for me. I don't really feel like I'm gaining as much out of it as I thought I would or as I wanted to. And they, they come with a few different reasons for why they feel like they, they want to quit attending the, uh, or being a part of the life group. So they've considered many reasons for why they might stay and, and why they might leave. And the whole time as they're giving me these reasons, I'm thinking, not one time have you mentioned the blessing that is being able to add to the group, not just being able to receive from the group. I'm thinking, not, not, I'm saying, you, you are so cynical towards the idea of God working through you in the lives of the people in your life group that it never even crossed your mind one time that maybe God wants you in the group for what you can bring to the group and not just what you can get from the group. This, this cynicism, this cynicism, this hopelessness, this, this inability to believe that God has intentional purpose for my life every single day, every single moment of our lives, the, the disbelief in that truth causes us to interpret everything inside the church oftentimes based on what I can receive and not on what I can give because we don't really believe God will work through us like that. Because we're skeptical about God's activity working through us. And if you don't believe God will work through you, then the only thing you have, the only lens you have to gauge whether or not this group I'm a part of is actually working is what you are receiving from the group. This cynicism has sunk its roots so deep into us that we don't even consider maybe God has me here because he wants me to encourage those who are downtrodden in my group. Maybe God has me here because he wants me to use me to give counsel and empathy to others in the group. Maybe he wants me to rebuke and correct. Maybe he wants me to be in the group so I can learn and see how people are doing, so I can be on my knees praying for them every day because they need a prayer warrior in their life. Maybe God wants to use me to, to bless someone with the faithfulness of being a true friend to them. But we're so cynical and doubting towards God and his desire and his power to work through us. They wouldn't even consider that. Never crossed our mind. Because we can't fathom. We can't fathom that God sends us every moment of our lives with purpose for his glory. You live like there's no divine purpose in your life because this spiritual cynicism is taking root and taking hold and is dictated to you the way that you think, the way that you interpret your situations and your surroundings. And the body of Christ is suffering because of it. And the body of Christ is suffering and not as built up and edified as it should be. Because when it comes down to it, we just don't trust God. 
Because when it comes down to it, we're more like Thomas than we believe. If you're going cynical about the presence and power of the risen Christ, the Bible talks about the, the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in and with us. That his power is with us, that he wants to work through us for his purposes. But you have no drive to join God in his mission to sanctify and transform his people because you just don't believe he will work through you like that. Maybe for you, you go to your job every day, you have people there who don't know Jesus, right? Not, not, not a part of a body of faith at all. And you're not praying for open doors to share the gospel and you're not looking for ways to engage them spiritually at all because you have no expectation for God to work in and through you because this cynicism is controlling you. You're going cynical about the presence and power of the risen Christ. So there's no, there's no drive at all to join him in his mission to seek and save the lost. Some of our cynicism is doubting God's care for us. I mean, we, we would tell people that, that, that God loves us for sure, but, but when it comes to the day-in, day-out activity, we just kind of feel like God's distant. That, that he doesn't really care, that he's, he's there, he's present, he's powerful, but he's not involved in the day-to-day. We kind of, this cynicism paints this picture of God as he's a, he's, a, he's a father that's there, but he's emotionally distant, right? He, he's a father that, 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 that's around. Yeah, he's present, but he's, he's not involved. He's not, he doesn't truly care. It's like, it's like, it paints this picture of God as, a, as this watchmaker or, or, or a clockmaker where you just, you just make it, you set everything up, tell it to go, and it just, everything just runs on its own while the, while the watchmaker just sits back and watches it happen. This view of God is rooted in our, our cynicism. For some of us, it's doubting. Our cynicism is doubting that God can and will actually change us. For some of us, we felt the pain of sin, temptations, habits, addictions over weeks, months, years. For some of us, maybe even decades at this point. We've just given up hope that God would change us. We've just given us hope that God is mighty and powerful enough to use his, to work through his, through his Holy Spirit as we seek him through spiritual distance, like fasting, like praying, like meditating on God's word, or maybe seeking counsel or counseling in some way, we just, we just don't believe that God can or desires to actually free us from the chains that have been holding us for years and years. We are spiritually cynical. I mean, I'm sure we'd say that God uses those different things to change us, but deep down, we don't truly believe it. So here's what happens. So for us, as we've been going through this personal liturgy series, as we've used uh, the, the different challenges in the app to try to push us towards God, try to push us towards fasting, push us towards praying and things like that, for you, you've just been like, nah, I'm good. Nah, I'm good. Spending time every day in prayer? Nah, I'm good. Spending time meditating on God's word? Nah, we sleep on God's power because we've grown cynical. We've grown cynical. We sleep on his power to change us. When the Bible says we are new creations now, when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit now indwells all who are followers of Jesus, we don't trust him. As Christians, we relate to Thomas. Even though we know that he's real and that he's for us, we, we have these doubts that continue to creep in. Here's the, here's, the more, here's the more important question. This is probably the most important question I've asked yet. What does Jesus do when we have those doubts? How, how does he respond to us? Let's keep it rolling. Verse 26. 
eight days later, right? So this is eight days after they've come to Thomas and said, Thomas, we've seen the risen Jesus. He's alive again. He said, unless I put my hands in the holes in his hands, I'm not believing, right? So this is eight days later, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So he's doing the same thing, comforting them. Thomas is in the room with them this time. Then he, then he addresses Thomas specifically. How does he address Thomas? This is extremely important in knowing how Jesus uh, uh, sees us or views us or, or loves us in our times of doubt. How does Jesus respond specifically to Thomas? Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. In my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you see how kind Jesus is? He doesn't move away from Thomas because he would have had good reason to. Thomas, I predicted that I was going to come out of the grave. You heard me say that. Thomas, the disciples have told you this. Thomas, you knew that this was supposed to happen. Thomas, how could you not believe that I could live when I told you I was the Christ, that I was the Messiah? Thomas, you should have known. This is what Jesus could have said to him. Rightfully so. No, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not, be, do not disbelieve, but believe. He meets Thomas right where he is. Not where Thomas should be. He doesn't meet Thomas where Thomas should be at this point in the game, at, the, at this point in his journey. He meets Thomas right here where he is in his doubts. He tells the doubter in Thomas, the sinner in Thomas, to come to me. Come on. Come, bring your doubts, bring your fears, bring your concerns, bring your questions. Come to me and see your crucified and resurrected Lord. And that's what he's showing him as he's saying, look at the holes in my hands. He's saying, I was crucified and I'm alive. I died and yet I live. See Calvary and see the resurrection and believe, Thomas. And believe. See where they stabbed me with the sword in my side. You can put your hand in my side. He's not sitting back and waiting for Thomas to get rid of all of his doubts before he comes to him. He's not sitting back and waiting for Thomas to get himself right and pull himself together as he should. No, no, he comes to Thomas and he invites Thomas to come to him. And he calls Thomas to believe. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a kind and gracious and merciful and real and true Savior we have. That he wouldn't shun us when these thoughts of of, of doubt and and cynicism creep into our minds. That he wouldn't shun us when we begin to put our eyes on things of this world and not keep our eyes on him. But instead he would still continue this invitation. And the invitation that he extended to Thomas is the same invitation he extends to us in our doubts and our cynicism today to come to him. Check out Thomas' response after receiving this invitation from Jesus. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Hope and faith restored. Not only does he see the resurrected Jesus as his friend and his leader that's come back in the flesh, but he sees, no, 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 I see the, I see the crucifixion. I see where you died in my place. I see you raised up from the dead, and I conclude that you are God in the flesh right here before me, Thomas says. My Lord and my God. Unless we begin to believe that Jesus went out of his way to to pursue Thomas in his disbelief, but he doesn't do the same thing for us. Unless we're tempted to believe that we are forgotten by our Savior. Check out verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Check out what he says in verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is, this is the next to last chapter in the book. He's about to conclude this whole book. He's like, let me tell you why I wrote all of this stuff down, all these, these signs. He says, I couldn't capture all of them. I didn't have enough room to capture all the signs. But these that I wrote down, I wrote down for one specific purpose, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ there is, is a word that's rooted in the Old Testament about this Messiah, this chosen one of God who's going to come that make, to make all things right in the world. He was going to defeat sin and establish his kingdom on the earth and reign and rule with justice and righteousness in the earth. Said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, you, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That Jesus... He moved towards Thomas, and he had in view all who would come to faith in him afterwards, that he ensured that his, his written word would, would be extended generation after generation after generation because he wanted you and he wanted me to believe in Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus had us in mind as well. That, that, that in this, this, this interaction with Thomas in, in, in the book of John, as he moves towards Thomas, he's actually moving towards us as well in his love. He's actually inviting us, come bring your doubts, come bring your fears, come bring your questions and your concerns. And what you do is you look at the crucifixion and you look at the resurrection and know that he is God. And know that he is God. When I went through that period of doubt, Doubting the realness of God, doubting, doubting the presence of God. God used the same thing to sustain me and my faith as well. Uh, that summer, I actually went um, on a mission trip to, uh, to Ghana uh, for four weeks. Um, I had to raise $5,000 to do it. I was still in college. Uh, I, had a, I had an internship that was kind of like a part-time job, so I was like, I don't know how I'm, how I'm going to go. And at the same time, I'm doubting God. And I'm asking God, God, will you, will you give me a sign or something? I'm going to sign up to go. God, if you're real, will you help me to go? This was legitimately my prayer. God, if you're, if you're real, will you help me and, and fund this trip so that, so that I can go? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just looking for a sign. I had raised about, I think, uh, $3,000 uh, at some point. Uh, a pastor contacts me and says, I heard about uh, your trip. Um, do, you, do you still need uh, support and funds for it? And I was like, yeah. He was like, all right, well, we got uh, $3,500 just sitting here. Um, that we're supposed to give some missionaries, but we don't have anybody to give it to. So I guess I, I guess I'll give it to you. Is that is that enough? I was like, uh, uh, yes, 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 it is enough. Yes, it is enough. I went on a trip. Here's the thing: that sign that I asked for didn't take away my doubts and my cynicism. It didn't take it away. I thought it would. I thought if that happened, okay, God would prove itself. But in my head, it was like, oh, well, they just had $3,500 that they was going to give to a missionary anyway. We just happened to have some connections. And so that doesn't prove to me that God is real. Let me tell you what did actually cause a turn in my life and my faith at the time. I, was, I remember being there. I remember this conversation very distinctively. Our, our biggest purpose there was we were just going to share Jesus and who he was uh, with non-believers that were there in God. We were partnering with some other ministries, helping them do some outreach and some evangelism uh, and things like that. And so I remember having a conversation with a guy um, telling him about Jesus. And he said, I don't understand, like, the justice of this guy that you're communicating to me. Like, how, 
how can he just let people who've done horrible things just get out, Scott, just, just get off and just have them be pardoned and, and no penalty at all? Like, how can he do that? So I went in and talked about the justice of God and how he exhausted his, his judgment and wrath on his son in the place of those who deserved uh, to, to suffer under his judgment for all eternity. And I began to explain to him, like this, in this way, he is able to both be just, he's able to be a righteous judge and also justify and pardon people who need to be justified and pardoned like me and you. And I felt in that moment, as I was talking about the salvation and the saving work of Jesus Christ, I felt my soul encouraged. That there was something about hearing it, even though it was coming from my own mouth. It was something about hearing the gospel message over and over again that God just began to encourage me and bolster my faith more and more. My drive for ministry started to replenish it in me. But it was all around this this meditation on on God's word that he's the, the big picture of the Bible is that sin came and messed everything up. We chose everything but God, but God still continued to pursue us and paid the penalty for our sins that he might redeem his creation and that we might be with him forever. And the more I meditated on that and the more I thought about that and the more I I kept that in the forefront of my mind, the more I felt the Holy Spirit restoring my faith in him. I got a phone call probably a couple years later from uh, another uh, believer in the same ministry. He's a a leader uh, in the faith, a leader in the kingdom of God to this day. He gave me a phone call and he said, he said, man, I'm starting to have, I'm starting to have some doubts. Like, are you sure that Jesus is who he says he is? Like, are you, are you, are you confident in this? And can you tell me why? And so we went through some of the apologetic stuff, some of the stuff I talked to you about, um, about you, that you can Google just evidence for the resurrection. We talked about that. And then he started to feel a little bit better in the conversation. And he was like, man, I'm just, I'm trying to believe, but I'm struggling right now. And I told him, I was like, man, listen, you can go look for apologetics. You can look for signs like I look for, but I'm going to tell you what the sign is. You look to the crucified savior that is resurrected from the dead. You keep your eyes on the saving work of Jesus Christ. In times when you, don't, when you don't even know if what you're believing is true anymore, you keep your eyes on it. You tell other people in your life to preach it to you. You preach it to yourself. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You look at the holes in his hands, the piercing, the hole that is in his side, and that is where you will find your faith. If anyone were to come to me and ask me, and what, what, what do I do? I'm struggling with my faith. I, I point them, if you have intellectual arguments, we can have those arguments all day long. Intellectual arguments at the end of the day do not prove, do, do not bolster our faith in an ultimate way. Whether you're struggling to believe that God is real, whether you're struggling to believe that God loves you, whether you're struggling to believe that God desires to use you, whether you're struggling to believe that God can and will change you, whatever it is, you keep your eyes on Christ. You keep your eyes on him. You keep looking at the the crucifix. You keep considering it. You keep remembering what the Bible says. You open up the Bible. You read about it in the scriptures. You open up. You spend time in it. If if you're struggling in your faith and it's hard for you to deal and continue on, you open it. If you got to be in it for hours, you be in it for hours. You got to be in it all night. You be in the Bible all night long. You do what you have to do. Keep your eyes on our resurrected Savior. And that is how we fight for faith. That is how we fight against our cynicism, and it's through meditating on the Word of God, the living, breathing Word of God, Jesus, and the written Word of God, the Scriptures. And we do as God told Joshua, that we will meditate on it day and night. And in doing so, we're doing the same thing that God called Thomas to do, that Jesus called Thomas to do, to to come to him in the middle of our doubts, in the middle of our cynicism, and find our faith in him that we might believe. Let me pray for us. Fam. 
Lord God, we're, Father, we're grateful. We're grateful to you. We're grateful for you. God, you've done so much for us. God, I pray for anyone in the room who's truly struggling, who's truly struggling in their faith. Lord, anyone in the room who maybe have heard these seemingly wise arguments that that make a case for you not to exist, Lord, for, for anyone who is there, I pray for your spirit to comfort, to bring strength, to bring faith in you. Lord, if there's anyone in the room who's just considering giving this whole Christianity thing up, who's considering just walking away, Lord, would you remind them of what you have done? what you have done for them, what you have done for your people, Lord, how you're going to redeem your creation and carry your people home to be with you forever, Lord. And I'm grateful that one day all these doubts will be just a memory in our minds when we go on to be with you, that you will remove everyone, Lord, that right now as we fight for faith, there will be a day when the fight will be over and our faith will meet sight when we get to see, as Thomas saw, our resurrected Lord who died for us. Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, and in the meantime, will you help us in our doubts? Will you uproot this cynicism, Lord? Whether we just doubt your presence in our lives, whether we doubt the fact that you're real, whether we doubt that you actually are are powerful and desiring to work in us and through us. God, will you strengthen us? Will you bolster us in our faith? We need your Holy Spirit to do it. It's in Christ's name I pray.